Let's take our Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. And if you'll remember to silence your electronic devices, unless you have a pacemaker, leave that alone. But if it's a phone, let's turn that off. Second Kings chapter 17, glad to see the Howards back with us, <laughs> yes, we're such a small church when we have a row missing, it, it really stings. We spent a lot of time in verse 5 last week on purpose, and now we're in verse 6 where Samaria which is the capital city of Israel when the kingdoms were divided, just to remind you. Samaria was once besieged by Assyria. They were surrounded. And now they've been carried away to Assyria by Assyria. That same enemy that besieged Samaria also carried them into captivity. And we noted last week that the besieging of Samaria by Assyria was just like the sinner who is besieged by sin. And today we're going to continue studying that truth. The first text I'll give you is Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. And if you'll just listen, I'll read that, and you can write it down in your notes if you like. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now listen to this. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That word beset in the Hebrews text means to skillfully surround. Now that sounds a lot like the word besiege, doesn't it? Beset. To skillfully surround. And the Greek word for it is only used one time in the New Testament. And it's right here in Hebrews. So let's learn from it. Let's put it together with what we're learning about the word besieged. And thinking back to how Assyria besieged or skillfully surrounded Samaria, let's think about what it takes to successfully besiege a city. Now, when we're talking about it being done militarily, as it was with Assyria, it takes planning. You don't just run toward a city and say, hey, let's surround it without a tremendous amount of planning. It takes skill. You can have a great plan. Uh, I rarely quote Mike Tyson, but he said, somebody said, some interviewer asked him about the guy he was going to fight in his next boxing match. And he said, well, he said he, he plans to do this and plans to do that. And Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan till they get hit in the mouth. 
<laughs> you remember that? I didn't say it like he did, and I'm not going to. But no military commander takes surrounding a city lightly. There's planning, there's skill. You have to be able to do it. There are provisions you have to take because a siege, by definition or by operational definition, lasts a long time. You don't know how long it's going to last. It was something that was used in the Civil War, the uncivil war between the states, to starve out forts and, and uh, strongholds of the Confederate Army. And so we have a besiegement taking place. It requires planning and skill and provision, and it also requires endurance. You have to be ready to sit there for an awfully long time, if that's what it takes, to accomplish the purpose. And in the Hebrews 12 text, we learn that sin surrounds us easily. And in fact, it has no plans to go away. Sin doesn't decide one day, you know, I've afflicted old shepherd long enough. I need to, I feel sorry for him. I think I'll depart from him for just a moment. It doesn't do that. It, it surrounds me. It surrounds you. And one of the reasons that it does so easily is we fail to lay aside the weight of that sin, like the Hebrews text tells us. And to carry the weight of a sin is to carry a heavy burden. It's to be surrounded by an enemy that we can't defeat on our own. And the yoke that you wear with sin is a grievous yoke. It's not a light yoke like Jesus said his is. The Apostle Paul explains it a different way. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, Galatians 5 and verse 1, where he told the church, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, the word entangled is to ensnare, to ensnare. And how does a snare trap an animal? It surrounds the animal's foot when the animal steps into the snare, and when the animal begins pulling away, the snare grows tighter. It pulls tighter around its foot. It has besieged, it has entangled the animal's foot. And the more the animal pulls, the tighter it gets. The snare doesn't say, you know, this animal has been struggling for a long time against me. I think I'll loosen my grip. That's not what a snare does. That'd be foolish. And if you were a trapper, a fur trapper, or a hunter, or you were just trying to get your next meal, you wouldn't want the snare to turn loose, would you? You'd want it to keep a hold of your prey. And if only the animal could lay aside that snare by loosening it, then it would be free. But to do that, the animal has to reverse its course. Well, the animal, uh, now a raccoon might be able to pick one of those apart. They are pretty crafty little fellers. But most animals are going to pull until they've either been trapped or caught by the trapper 
Or in some cases, they may chew their leg off to get out of the trap. But it doesn't occur to them to back up and to get their little paws around that snare and try to loosen it from their foot and push it off. That would require them to reverse course. They're too busy pulling against the snare, which has them surrounded, and it's not doing any good. And to get out of the snare, they have to reverse course. Now, if only sinners would lay aside that weight that comes with sin, then they would no longer be in bondage to it. Struggling against it, trying to make the situation better, trying to reform yourself is just as foolish as the animal pulling against that snare that surrounded its leg. And the besieged city and the besieged sinner will never, never, never be free as long as they continue to go the way that led to their being entrapped. Samaria could not wish the Assyrians away. They couldn't say, oh, when I open my eyes, the Assyrians are going to be gone. That wouldn't work. They couldn't talk them into going the way. Hoshea the king had already made the Assyrian king angry by failing to give gifts to him as he had done year to year before that. And turning to the Lord, turning to the the law of the Lord and his precepts would mean they would have to turn away from the sin that caused Assyria to besiege them in the first place. Because in the big picture, this was no less than God delivering Samaria into the hands of their enemies because of their disobedience to him. And when we turn to the Lord in repentance, then what we've done is turned away from the sin that so easily beset us, the sin that held us in bondage, that had us entrapped like a snare. Now, when a city is besieged by sin, it will ultimately be carried away as captives, like Samaria was. What good would it do for an army to surround a city and to stay there for days and weeks and maybe even months trying to starve out the people only to kill them. Why, the purpose of it is to take them and enslave them and make them work for free for your country. Prisoners of war. That's the military strategy behind that. If you want to kill all of them, it'd be easier to just go in there and kill them all and go back home. Why would you want to spend weeks and months away from home as an army? So ultimately, the city is carried away captive like they were in our text. And when the sinner is beset by sin, he will ultimately be carried away if there's nothing done to change his condition. I'm going to read a part of Solomon's prayer as it was recorded in 2 Chronicles, which we have not studied except when we refer to it in our study of 2 Kings. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 36 through 39. 
Second Chronicles 6, verses 36 through 39, and listen as I read, where Solomon is praying to the Lord about the children of Israel, and said, If they sin against thee, for there is no man which sinneth not, and thou be angry with them, and deliver them over before their enemies, and they carry them away captives unto a land far off or near. Now that's where Samaria is right now in our text. Yet, now here's their escape. Yet, if they bethink themselves in the land whither they are carried captive, and turn and pray unto thee. Stop pulling against the snare. They turn and pray unto thee in the land of their captivity, saying... We have sinned, we have done amiss, and we have dealt wicked and have dealt wickedly. If they return to thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, whither they have carried them captives, and pray toward their land which thou gavest unto their fathers, and toward the city which thou hast chosen, and toward the house which I have built for thy name. Then hear thou from the heavens, even from thy dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people which have sinned against thee. Now the prayer is longer than that, but that's part of it. By its captors and by its consequences, Israel, here Samaria, was carried away physically. Physically into captivity, but spiritually they, just like all other sinners, are carried away unto condemnation. You see, the unbeliever is already condemned in his sin. It's not that he has to do something really horrific or continue in this sin or that sin. He's already condemned by his sin. And all his continual sins do is just aggravate his lost condition. John chapter 3 and verse 18 says, in the middle of the verse, it says, He that believeth not is condemned already. He's already, if we look at it the way we're looking at our text, he's already surrounded by his condemnation. The unbeliever is. And he may not hope to escape it by his own effort. He can pull against the snare as much as he wants. And all it's going to do is further and further ensnare him. That's what man does when he tries to be saved by his own works. He says, well, I'll do this. Well, I'll say this prayer and I'll go, I'll go back here and get baptized. You're just pulling against the snare. It's still got you. When that sinner... No matter how brilliant his scheme is, no matter how excellent his strategies are, he is going to be carried away by sin's consequences into the land of captivity. And when left to its normal course, that's how it happens every time. Now, just how impossible is it to escape the condemnation of sin that has the unbeliever surrounded. How impossible is it? Is there a chance? In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, 
Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, the writer said, For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Now, in those two verses, the writer of the Hebrews text shows us the impossibility of escaping what is called the recompense of reward. Now, you may not use those terms as they did in the days this was translated. What is that? The recompense of reward, that's from one Greek word, and it's used for the payment of wages. Now, those wages could be good like a paycheck. We like getting our wages every week or two weeks or month or however often you're paid for your work. Or those wages could be bad like the wages of sin, which is death. And that verse tells us that there's a paycheck for every transgression and every disobedience. It said if the word spoken by the angels was steadfast, in other words, if it was reliable, then every transgression and disobedience received a payment. There's a payment for every one of them. And it stacks up, it surrounds us, and we can't escape it. Except through the great salvation, as that verse put it. And that great salvation is not found in a military commander or a great philosopher, but only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if Samaria were able to figure out a way to escape from the king of Assyria, they can't escape from the condemnation of their sin without the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing on him who would come in, in their time, who would come in the future. They look to the same Jesus we look back to. Same one. Same salvation. And so that besieged Samaria had only one hope. And that is the same as the besieged sinner. That their sins would be washed white as snow. What did Solomon say in his prayer? He said, Lord, when they do all of this, when they are in captivity, if they turn to you with their whole heart, and they pray, would you forgive their sins? And it's not about praying that your sins would be forgiven. It's about turning your whole heart and all of the things that come after that are evidence that your whole heart has turned to the Lord. When you trust in Jesus for salvation, you turn away from the things you thought would save you. Or you turn away from your unbelief that there was no God to believing not only is there a God, but he loves you and he sent Jesus to die for you. Yes, that's turning to him with your whole heart. Then don't get caught up with thinking, well, I'm not sure if I was 100% sincere. That's the devil's treadmill that you're on, as our pastors put it before. But that's the only escape. That great salvation is found in Jesus. Listen to what Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 says, and this is speaking of the baby Mary would deliver. 
Matthew 1, 21 says, and, he sh and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That word save is to make whole, and that's how it's translated nine times in the New Testament. For not only was Israel besieged by her enemy, but her people were besieged by their own sins. And they didn't need their physical bodies to be delivered from the siege as much as they needed for their spiritual man to be delivered from the besiegement of their sins. That's what they really needed. And that's what all of these captivities in the Bible represent. Even in the New Testament, Israel was under Roman rule. When Jesus makes you whole, you're no longer besieged by your sin. Before he saved you, you were. And you were without hope and you had no chance of escape on your own. Any more than these, Assyri these Sumerians do in Assyrian captivity. So in our text, Assyria, who once besieged Samaria, has now carried her away. And this is what happens when the sinner dies in unbelief and goes to hell and then the lake of fire. He who was once besieged by his sin while on earth is now carried away in death by that which besieged him in life. The wages of sin is death. You're surrounded by it and it will carry you away. It's a payment that has to be made because God is just and God's holy. The unbeliever, which if you're saved or if you're not saved, but if you're saved, the unbeliever once was in bondage to sin, once was ensnared, surrounded by sin, and that body that we have is going to be carried away in death. Thank God, because I'm not getting any better looking. My middle daughter, about 10 years ago, took her phone and she said, here, Dad, let me take a picture of you. And I thought, well, this, this ought to be interesting. And then she did the age progression. And she got to about 80 and she started crying. And I said, Lauren, it's okay if I live to be 80, then you'll be thankful for that. She's very emotional. She's a sweet girl. And I saw it and I thought, well, there goes that if I had any hope of looking better than I do when I'm 50. But that's okay. I, I know that's going to happen. It's, it's not something that overtakes me. I don't go see my cosmetologist once a week and, and, and do all these things to try to keep me looking young. I don't try to accelerate my aging either, by the way. <laughs> but that's, that's the body, isn't it? I don't ask that God deliver me from old age. I'm thankful he's given me the years that he's given me. And however many more, that's just going to be gravy on the potatoes, Doug. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, and I read that to you, the first part of it, for the wages of sin is death. And listen to that carrying away, how this happens. Revelation chapter 20 verses 14 through 15. Revelation chapter 20 verses 14 through 15. Now we've already laid the groundwork that the sinner is besieged by his sin, just like the Sumerians were besieged by the Assyrians. And just like they were carried away 
the unbeliever will be carried away. And here's where it happens. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life, now that's the unbeliever, was cast into the lake of fire. That's where he's carried away. The unbeliever is besieged by sin and he dies in that sin. And as that sin pays its wages, he's cast into the lake of fire. He never is out of bondage. He's never through being surrounded by sin. He was born in bondage. He lived in bondage. And he died in bondage. And he will eternally die in the bondage of sin. But the second part of Romans 6.23, the happy news for us, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'll give you another text in Romans chapter 8 verse 2. Because this is the contrast. This is for the believer. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. We just read about the law of sin and death. The wages of sin is death. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. But we have been made free in Christ Jesus from that. We were, you notice it didn't say we were made free because we started working out and we started reading books and becoming uh, stronger and smarter. So one day when we go to that judgment bar, we can convince God that we're really not that bad. It doesn't say that. It says we've been made free in Christ Jesus. The strong, the weak, the intelligent, the not so intelligent... And because I'm in Christ, I'm no longer besieged by sin. And death cannot carry me away to hell into the lake of fire. It cannot do it. So not only am I not worried about being besieged by sin, I'm not worried about being carried away by it. And I didn't break free from that siege. Christ made me free from it, just like the Bible says. And Hosea, the king of Israel could not break free from the siege of Assyria and he cannot escape being carried away to Assyria. And there was one way to break that siege. There was one way to keep from being carried away. There was one way to be delivered once they were carried away. And that was simply to obey what God's word said about their sin. To turn to him. Lord, we have messed up and we are suffering the consequences for it. Have mercy. They did nothing to deserve being delivered. Only God's mercy, in his mercy, would he deliver them. But he said he would. And he did every time. Now, that doesn't mean he did it immediately. Sometimes he said, no, you're going to endure this for a while. You're, you're going to reap what you've sown, and then I will do A, B, C. Let's look now at verse 7 in our text, 2 Kings chapter 17, if you've lost your place. Verse 7. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. Now the word for, at the beginning of verse 7, tells us that the verses before this verse 
were the consequences of this. The children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. So it's very clear that this is why they were besieged and why they were carried away captive. Not that they had made the Assyrians angry. Yes, they had, but that wasn't the reason they were carried away. Or that they had offended some other earthly power, but that they had sinned against the Lord their God. And when you see sin from God's perspective, it shows you how foolish man is when man sees sin from his perspective. Two totally different perspectives. And we are confident through our study of God's word over the years that his word never changes. That's what it means when we say his word is immutable. That just means it never changes. Psalm chapter 33 and verse 4. Psalm chapter 33 and verse 4 says, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. So what is one thing we know about God's word? It's always right. Not only does it not change, but it's always right. But false religions have always placed the traditions of men above the word of God. Now they may have the word of God in their worship, in their religious practices. They may even hold it up and say, oh, it's Bible-based. Well, that's what the Masonic Lodge says is it's Bible-based. And if you're a Mason, I'm not sorry to offend you. I want you to know the truth. I love you. And it'd be silly if I told you that, that uh, you go to heaven by being a Mason or that you have some special place in, in God's elect if you're a Mason or if you're any other thing, not, not just that group there. But the, the false religions have always placed tradition of men above the word of God. So the false preacher will tell someone he has sinned when he has not. And he'll tell someone he has not sinned when he has. And the reason that these two things happen is the false preacher does not show the person that they have sinned against the Lord their God by showing them the scriptures. But rather by showing them what the church says is a sin. And there's a big difference. There shouldn't be any difference. This church, Central Baptist Church, not just the pastor and myself and the teachers and the adults and the children, but everybody who comes here should come away saying, you know, here's what Central Baptist Church says about sin. It says the same thing about it as the Bible says. There's not any difference. That's what should be said about this church, is that what they say is a sin is what the Bible says is a sin. However... That's not always the case. In fact, very often it's not the case with churches around the world, so-called. Here's an example of a false preacher telling people that they have sinned when they have not. It's in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1. And you could find more examples than this, but here's one. Acts 15 verse 1, where it says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren, now these are believers, taught the believers, taught the brethren, and said, 
except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. So these men taught, that these men of Judea taught that failing to, to be circumcised in the flesh was a sin, and it was one that would keep man from being saved, no matter whether they believed on the Lord Jesus or not. Now here's an example of a false preacher telling people they have not sinned when they actually had sinned. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 13, it's Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 13, and he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother. And whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. So there's the commandment. You dishonor your father or mother, you curse them, let, let you die the death. But ye say, now that's the problem, isn't it? But ye say. God said this, but ye say. That means you're saying something besides what God's saying. But ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or mother, making the word of God none effect through your tradition which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. Now that can be a confusing passage, and it takes quite a bit of time to teach on it. It'd take a little while for me to properly teach it, so I'm going to just summarize it for here by saying that these Pharisees, to whom Jesus was talking, had stated that the commandment says, if you honor your father or mother, or you dishonor your father or mother, then you're going to die. And then they added something to that. They were teaching that a man would not be dishonoring his parents by refusing to provide relief to them as long as they referred to whatever they were going to give them as korban or a gift. In other words, they could say, oh, no, I can't give you this. this. This is dedicated for a sacred purpose to the Lord. And it wouldn't be something that the Lord ever commanded his people to offer or give. In other words, it was just an excuse for them to be selfish with their own riches. And the Pharisees were teaching, that's okay. It's not a sin. Jesus said it's not okay. And so he said, not only is it not okay, but you've used your own traditions to make God's word of none effect. You set God's word aside. And at that time... Israel was under Roman bondage. And the children of Israel had religious leaders like these Pharisees telling them that as long as they followed the rules the Pharisees made up, they would be right with God. And meanwhile, Israel was still in captivity in those days. They were still pulling against the snare, trying to do what the Pharisees said was right. And rather than the Pharisees telling the people, look, you're in captivity because you sinned against the Lord your God. Just like Solomon said. Just like our text said in, in verse 7. Here's why you're in captivity. 
of the Roman government. You've sinned against the Lord your God. And you need to turn to him with your whole heart. And you need to do what your fathers said whenever the commandments were given them in the wilderness, all that the Lord has said, this we will do. That's what you need to do. But instead, they didn't. Just a remnant did, just like it is today. The rest of them cried about Jesus, crucify him. They called him a a blasphemer, a liar, when all he had done is shown those who were in captivity how to be delivered from the sin that besieged them, the sin that had so easily beset them, the sin that would one day carry them away under condemnation if they did not repent. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. 1 John 1, I wrote 18, but I believe it's 8. If we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10 of that same chapter, he said, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The Pharisees then, the children of Israel in our text, and people today need to all hear that. The sin that John wrote about was not transgression of the Pharisees' commandments. The sin he wrote about was sin against the Lord their God. The same sin that got them into captivity in verse 7 in our text and before and after that. And that is why Samaria is in captivity. Now back in verse 7, notice with me in our text the phrase, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. From under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, where was Israel then? In those days, they were captives in Egypt. They had initially gone to Egypt because during the famine, Jacob, the father of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, said, sent his sons to Egypt to seek relief for the famine. Well, that was the wrong thing to do. That was a mistake. <laughs> God never told his people, uh, if, if it gets slim pickings down there, if your crops are failing, if the water's drying up, go to a Gentile enemy nation and see if they'll help you. No, he said, turn to me. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. He said, I will forgive their sins. I will heal their land. Not the Egyptians would. And that truth is over and over in the Bible, repeated. But they were captives in Egypt because they'd initially gone there during a famine. And even before they went to Egypt in that famine, God knew what was going to happen to them. He knew there would be a captivity, an ill treatment of his people, And he knew how he would deliver them one day. And Israel, like Samaria, boy, this is good. Israel, in those days, in in the days before Joseph, or when Jacob sent his sons there to Egypt, Israel in those days, in Samaria, in our text, had assumed 
that those who benefited them early would benefit them in the end as well. That was a false assumption, wasn't it? In both cases, the nations whom Israel thought to be their friend was a foe instead. And as our current verse tells us, God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel had initially lived freely and very prosperously there in the land of Goshen. And then even more so when Joseph was the number two in command under the Pharaoh. But as Exodus chapter 1 verse 8 says, Now there arose up a new king over Egypt which knew not Joseph. And from that time on, that Pharaoh and all the Pharaohs afterward made life miserable for the children of Israel. They treated them as slaves. And after 400 years, there was finally a generation whom God delivered from that bondage, from that being, they weren't carried away. They went there of their own volition, but they were held captives. And look, it also says, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So our text gives a qualifier for the reason that God brought them, that they, their sin was aggravating. It says, for the, it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. Now that ought to be enough right there. But it was the Lord their God which brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It wasn't just that they had sinned against the Lord their God, but that they had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt. If God had been known to them as only their creator and not the one who brought them up out of the land, that should have been enough for them to obey him. The very fact that they created him. It should have been enough for Adam and Eve to obey God that he created them because he hadn't had to deliver them from anything. He created them. They were in perfect fellowship with him. There was no sin in the world. And there was one rule. By creation, God made man and woman. By procreation, People were born after that and after that and after that. God did not create Cain and Abel and Seth the same way he created Adam. He created Adam from the dust of the earth. He created Adam. He created everything out of nothing. But in the sorrow of childbirth, after they were kicked out of the garden, Eve and all the women after her brought forth children. And back then, nobody said, well, a man can be pregnant, too. Wasn't true then. It's not true now. All right, I'm done with that one for now. But by procreation, my parents made me. And when I was a child and until I became an adult and went out on my own, just being 18 doesn't mean you're free from all the rules. But until I became an adult and went out on my own... My parents had the right to expect me to obey them. By means of procreation, they are responsible for the man standing behind the pulpit. 
But they not only made me, but they delivered me from danger many times. I know they did. I was there when it happened. And that ought to have added to my desire to obey them. And God not only created Israel through the acts of procreation of which uh, he was the author, but he also delivered Israel. And Israel had double the reason to obey and to love God with all their hearts, but they didn't do it. We have double the reason to obey our parents with all our hearts, but we haven't done it. Not always. And the indictment against Israel is aggravated because they've not only sinned against the Lord their God, but they've sinned against the Lord their God who brought them up out of bondage. And we'll continue with that next week as we return, Lord willing, to the next part of that verse. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for the good attention of those who came and those who tuned in. And Lord, I pray that we'll take away from here the truth that you would have us to learn. And that when we think about you, Lord, we don't just think about you as the supreme being or the creator, but as our creator, as the one who delivered us from bondage, that we would love you, that we would obey you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.